Hey there, podcasting fan. There is a lot of Cracked podcasting for you to learn all about the world from right now. Cracked Gets Personal just did episodes about human trafficking in the United States and also garbage men all over the world. Find out all the secret things happening all around you from Robert Evans and Brandon Johnson on Cracked Gets Personal. And hey, happy Catherine Bigelow month, everybody. Cracked Movie Club is diving into all the best movies of one of the best directors working in Hollywood right now. They just did a live episode about Point Break. It's their first ever live episode and the first ever time we've done an entire podcast about surfing bank robbers. Find Cracked Gets Personal and Cracked Movie Club wherever you hear your podcasts. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace, a longtime pal of the show, because they know this show has incredible listeners. You guys are internet savvy, you're internet fans, and you're people who have a lot going on in your lives. Squarespace is the perfect way to make your next move a reality and something that lives online with its own website. Their analytics help you grow that site in real time. Their templates help you design it in a beautiful and intuitive way. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial right now. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, because we got deals for you. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also hoping everybody is okay. As we recorded this episode, there were four hurricanes in Texas and the Atlantic Ocean all at once. As I tape this show intro right now, a massive earthquake hit Mexico City, and we still don't know all the details. Also, the rest of the international news events happening right now are... Let's call it nuclear-ish. You're in the future. You know more. Let's just say everything feels a little apocalyptic. There's only been good news lately in the Professor Farnsworth from Futurama sense. You know, like he says, good news, everyone. And then it turns out everyone's radioactive or there's an alien invasion or, or the show's canceled, RIP. Anyway, our extra apocalyptic current world makes today's episode even more timely than I expected it would be. We are sitting down with the current world champion of fictional apocalypses, and also just one of the best writers on Earth. Because today's episode is about why real life is full of apocalypses in all kinds of places and on all kinds of scales that prime us to love stories about made-up apocalypses. Our guest this week is the author N.K. Jemison, and I am amazed that I get to say that. That was fun. She is one of the most exciting guests that we've ever had. A few weeks ago, she won her second Hugo Award in a row. If you don't know, the Hugo Award is the top award for science fiction and fantasy writing. And if you don't know anything about science fiction and fantasy, newsflash, sci-fi and fantasy are the world's most popular storytelling genres. That is literally true. The biggest movie series in the world is a sci-fi franchise called Star Wars. The biggest TV series is a fantasy franchise called Game of Thrones. And according to the Hugos, our guest wrote the top book in those genres for two years running. Also in her spare time, N.K. Jemison is the science fiction and fantasy book critic for the New York Times. So she writes apocalypses and has her finger on the pulse of other ones. We are thrilled she could squeeze in meeting up with Michael Swaim and with me during our recent trip to New York. 
This episode is about more than books, though. This is about all of life on Earth. Our planet has a long history of aggressively trying to kill us. The Toba catastrophe reduced Earth's human population to the size of a small town. Volcanoes and earthquakes and diseases have killed whole cities, countries, and even continents of people. Once you throw in wars, genocides, slave trades, and other human-on-human crime, I think this planet is a lot more apocalyptic than we usually acknowledge. N.K. Jemison is the first author I've ever read who, who fully captures that real chaos through fiction. Her books have floating mountains, mystical rock monsters, magic earthquake-making people, and other incredible elements in a way that speaks to the real man's inhumanity to man and Earth's inhumanity to life itself that happens in real life. It's also super worth saying she's doing the most diverse fantasy writing I've read in a long time. We didn't have time to fully dig into that on this episode, but that's a whole nother incredible thing going on in her books. If you like fiction, if you like nonfiction, or if you live on Earth, this podcast episode is for you. One thing to footnote before the episode starts, uh, I guess it's a footnote at the top of the show, so maybe let's call it a head note. Yeah, head note. Okay, Michael says a couple of times in this episode that Frank Herbert, who is the author of the Dune book series, worked for a local water department. He actually worked as an ecological scientist and a science writer. Michael's point is that Herbert's day job inspired his writing, and that's still true. Just want to clarify exactly what that day job was. Anyway, with that head note out of the way, please sit back or sit forward and observe as a mountain floats toward you in the sky. It's a book reference. You'll get it. Anyway, please enjoy this podcast episode with Michael Swaim and with N.K. Jemison. I will be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined in the studio by Crackzone Michael Swaim. Hello. Great Hello. to be here. Good. And uh, we are also joined by the one and only N.K. Jemison, who we're very happy to have in the studio. Also, uh, do you go by Nora? Is that right? Nora's fine. Nora's great. Good. And also, and congratulations on winning your second Hugo Award in a row. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Big deal to me. I mean, as a guy who grew up reading only science fiction (laughs) and fantasy and... Like, the Hugo and the Nebula were bigger than the Oscars to me, yeah. And that's nice, because, like, most people outside of science fiction are like, the, the what award? The Hugo? Right. Well, I, a was, car? I was checking out who was shortlisted <laughs> for the Eisner Awards and stuff like oh, that yeah. for uh, sequential art, so uh-huh. I don't know what's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but you're cool, Noah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and your new book, The Stone Sky, is out recently, and mm-hmm. it's the mm-hmm. third book completing your Broken Earth trilogy. Yep. There's all kinds of different things that jump out to me about it, but one of my favorites is how amazing you are at writing apocalypses. You're really, <laughs> really, really good at not just ending the world, but ending the world in a, on a rolling basis. I don't want to spoil any of the books at all, so I'm trying to, to avoid details. But but not post-apocalypse. The world is ending as a verb versus like, yeah. yeah. I'm so used to sci-fi being like, the cataclysm was 4,000 years ago. Mm. Now society is this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that you're in process. Your world is ending. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was also 4,000 years ago, too. Sure. If you got to be good at one thing, then, then that's going to be my thing, is apocalypses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners either haven't read Stone Sky yet or haven't read the trilogy at all yet. Do you want to... 
whenever we have authors on, I try to sum up the book, and then I feel like, oh, they could probably do it better. No, like, do you want to briefly no, describe? No, never ask an author. To or do you loathe? Do, right? Oh, don't. Like you yeah. could hate oh, okay. it. We all have Forget to practice like pitches and how to how to shrink down our book. So oh, I haven't yeah. practiced it in a while. So. All right, I'll try though. I appreciate okay, so, it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so the, the whole trilogy basically takes place in a non-Earth world, a secondary world is what we call it. This is a world with only one continent that is called the Stillness, which is ironic uh, because the Stillness is not at all still. It is right. very excessively seismically active. Um, and because of that, there are frequent apocalypses of both natural and sometimes human-caused form. And uh, there's a group of people in this world who have the, I guess, magical ability to stop seismic activity or start it, depending on what the heck is going on. Um, so the story focuses on uh, several people in this society. Yeah. And in particular, uh, is it pronounced orogenes? Orogenes is what they're called, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they're people who can control seismic activity with mm-hmm. their minds. minds. Yeah. yeah. Yes, oh, yes. good. I was well, wondering then, about minds, and it was. Great. They can start yeah. earthquakes with their brains, yes. <laughs> it does always hurt, I think, to ask an author, like, yeah, you spent six to eight years of your life, I'm sure, figuring that, can you rattle it off in a couple <laughs> right, sentences, <right>. please? <laughs> Real quick. Oh, yeah. I mean, our audience is busy. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> then they'll still put it at double speed. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the dastards. <laughs> I ask, because Michael and I, we both love apocalyptic fiction in general and we all and mm-hmm. we also on our on our own time uh, do a podcast about kurt vonnegut specifically and a lot oh. of his books have apocalyptic worlds right. and places where either the world has ended mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. someone will drop ice nine and do it in the book i think the site loves apocalypses and mm-hmm. i think to a large degree we're in a fictive time when Almost everyone loves apocalypses. Mm, it's really yeah. having a moment. Yeah. And I know that if you go back, certainly like after the A-bomb was invented, there were a handful of movies and shows where it's like, the A-bomb falls, then what happens? But I really feel like I don't think we've ever had as much media about hmm. what if the world changed completely mm-hmm. tomorrow. And we'll talk about why, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I was curious, Nora, why, what drew you in particular yeah. to writing a world that is in a constant and varied state of collapse in such mm. an imaginative way? Well, basically, I I wasn't really interested in the world. Um, the world wasn't what the sort of the primary focus. You know, I kind of talked about this in, in other interviews, but uh, I decided to do this because I had a dream about a woman walking towards me with a mountain floating behind her. And I knew that she was really pissed and she was going to throw that mountain at me because she was so pissed. Um, um, like it's her mountain. It's yeah. well, I mean, it's it's her mountain, but it was about to be my mountain in the face. And <laughs> I woke up kind of in a fever to know why is this woman so mad, so angry that she literally has like ripped a mountain out of the ground and is going to throw it at me, um, which you know, was was figurative in the dream, of course. But, you know, my my mind is like, let's figure out how that could really work. And then the stillness yeah. was born. Every every geeky person has their little weird things that they geek out about. And seismology has always been mine. I don't know why. Um, I did not grow up in places with seismic activity or volcanoes or anything. In fact, I barely grew up in places that had hills. Mm-hmm. Earthquakes have always been fascinating to me in in the way that I think possibly hurricanes may be to people who don't grow up on the the Gulf Coast. But so, you know, when I started thinking about, okay, well, 
what kind of world has magic users that use seismic activity? And I immediately thought, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, but then <laughs> but then I also thought, well, let's let's take that somewhere else. And then you watched Avatar The Last Bender. I had already watched it. Then you decided not to make any stories anymore. <laughs> oh, no. I had already watched it, and I loved gotcha. it, and I missed it. Oh, um, oh but, uh, but all that said, um, yeah. So then I came up with a world where... Uh, people would have sort of evolutionary developed this magical ability. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, can awesome. I, do you mind if I ask where specifically you grew up that did not have this kind of activity? I grew up between Brooklyn and Mobile, Alabama. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, Mobile, Alabama is flat. There's there's mud, but there's not so much, you know, seismic activity. Alex's um, face looks like he's so scared of earthquakes he wants to move there immediately. <laughs> like, where are there no earthquakes? Uh, there's a whole other problem there, though, yeah. which is uh-huh. it's, it's right on the Gulf Coast. It's get, it gets hurricanes every other minute. Um, So I grew up with hurricanes, and hurricanes are terrifying to some people. I was just sort of like, "Mm." Uh, you know, I mean, we were going through a period right now of just absolutely horrific hurricanes, Mm -hmm. um, super hurricanes, um, and that was not what I grew up with. Um, You know, when I was a kid, Category 5 hurricanes were relatively rare. Um, Now we've got them every week. Um, yeah. well, Speaking of natural and man-made apocalypses. Uh, yeah. yes. I don't know exactly when we'll release this, but we're taping mm-hmm. it in early September. Mm-hmm. And right now, Hurricane Harvey has already hit. And then there are three different hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico yeah. or on yeah. top of land yeah. Yeah. also. And mm-hmm. uh, that is not uh, the historical norm. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> There's not even really hills in, in Mobile. But... In New York, I'd visited the Catskills, but, you know, New York sits on a bunch of uh, sort of extinct fault lines. You know, you do occasionally have earthquakes here. We did just a few years ago, but it's not really. really, Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe about uh, seven or eight years ago, it was a um, relatively mild quake. Um, Now, every scientist in your audience is now like, but wait. Um, No, there (laughs) there are microquakes all the time, um, even here. So earthquakes, you know, when I say earthquakes, I mean one that people noticed <laughs> and mm-hmm. were just like, oh, that's not the subway. Um, I think it was actually the epicenter was, I want to say in Canada somewhere. But it was actually a few years ago and it was the first time I actually felt an earthquake. So, you know. Oh, were sure. you scared or were you fascinated? Were you I like, thought this? it was the subway. Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the one person in my office who was from California came running in, stood in the doorway and was like, we've got to get out of here. The buildings here aren't made for earthquakes. And I'm just like, what? That's the subway. What are you talking about? And so yeah. she dragged us all out. I feel like that must oh, be wow. because she was a transplant because she was living yes. in New York by then. Because yes. I'm born and raised in Southern California and I've never left. <laughs> and when I feel an earthquake, I have mm-hmm. no compulsion to do anything for my safety. I just <laughs> let it pass, which will bite oh, me wow. on the ass someday. But. Well, her reaction was because New York is not built for earthquakes. I would be more scared here of an earthquake. And that is precisely what she was worried about. We were in an old building that was already kind of, you know, not doing so hot. She's like, I don't care how small it is. We're evacuating. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Makes sense. And I'm from Illinois. And even though Illinois low-key has a fault line in southern Illinois called Mm. the New Madrid, I... Any earthquake, I'm just like, oh, it's over already. I wonder uh, if I've lived a good life. Hmm. <laughs> Why don't I think about everything? Uh, <laughs> let's oh, wow. just consider it. Okay. Yeah, but I have to just interject uh, because I found so interesting what you just said about how you got y- mm. your first interest in seismology. Frank Herbert of Dune fame famously mm. worked for the water department his whole life before <laughs> really? I didn't he wrote know that. the Dune series. So, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, That's yeah, amazing. it's interesting how... <laughs> 
so many great sci-fi worlds have been built from. Mm. What if I honed in on this one thing, mm. but then realistically held myself to everything has to make sense out of that. Right, right, and right. Uh, I think yours is a great example. Mm. But I mm. love worlds like that. It's funny yeah. that you said mm. you didn't focus on the world that much because the world certainly built itself. Well, I mean, world building is part of any speculative fiction. Okay, it um, has to be, yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, and it, it is a fun thing to do. It's definitely, you know, it was it was important to the story. But, you know, for me, there's been different people who kind of break down science fiction into and, and, and fantasy into uh, subcategories. You know, one of the breakdowns that I kind of like is is the one that sort of separates idea science fiction from character science fiction. I'm using science fiction as a blanket term right now to include fantasy horror, a bunch of other stuff, interstitials. But I tend to prefer character science fiction. It doesn't mean that the ideas, you know, aren't important. It doesn't mean I'm going to sleep on doing uh, my due diligence by kind of constructing a, a world that feels complete and is interesting. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in the stories of the people who have to deal with that world, you know, because at the end of the day, that's what it's really all about. Yeah. And and there is there's so much to the characters and their stories beyond mm. the fact that the earth is blowing up. It's also about how the society mm. is constructed, which is deeply unjust in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, but I mean, you know, there's there's obvious parallels there. For sure. Um, well, I was going to say yeah. that's what and makes it speculative. Yeah. It's so unimaginably uh, different <laughs> from yeah. anything we've seen on mm. our earth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, and also in any apocalypse story, I feel like we as audiences love seeing people go through them like mm-hmm. not that we want them to be harmed just we we want to see what right. they do and why they tackle it and i've always wondered exactly what the hook is to that i feel like one reason is partly that there are constant apocalypses happening on mm-hmm. earth in real life it's mm-hmm. on various scales and various yeah. amounts like yeah. we yeah. we mentioned obviously there are all these hurricanes coming but there are also <clears throat> several times when a city or country or mm. with with the Toba catastrophe theory, the world mm. had a very apocalyptic thing happen on that scale. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, but, you know, not even that. Apocalyptic, dystopian, whatever you want to call it, societies are happening as we speak uh, everywhere in the world. The sort of underlying theme of the series is um, that the people who have this magical ability to literally move mountains are oppressed because of it. Um, they are they are useful to society, but they're also terrifying to society. Yeah. Um, and society's way of dealing with that is to control them, commodify them, etc. You know, we've seen in our own society, there's lots of people, i.e. black people, um, right. who have dealt with, uh, you know, various levels of dystopian life, um, basically for as long as, as long as this country has existed. Um, you know, and that hasn't really stopped. Getting back to one of the things you said, I don't fully understand why people find comfort in apocalyptic fiction either, but I got a bunch of messages on the day after the U.S. election, uh, presidential election last year, of people who were like, I'm taking taking comfort in reading about the broken earth. And I'm like, huh. I don't yeah. I don't know what that means, but I'm just going to take it and be yeah. like, thank you. I'm sure it's meant as a positive. I don't get that exact response. Um, But I do think it appeals to us to, A, you always assume you'd live at least through the initial (laughs) wave. Or Mm. why are you even daydreaming yourself into this world, right? I sure hope I get killed off. Killed in the the cataclysm 4,000 years ago. (laughs) Wipe me out. (laughs) Um, Nice and simple. Well, I guess I feel like there is some appeal to post-apocalypse stories, at least, that is if I lived, the appeal is not how hard things would be, but a world where 
all the rules have completely been rewritten, Hmm. um, which I do think is appealing to people. It's the same reason in our own lives. There's like many apocalypses where like a huge life transition, let's say, or you move Hmm. across country or even when you're a kid the first time, this is a little grim, but Hmm. the first time you realize, oh, I and everyone I know will inevitably die someday. (laughs) That seems apocalyptic to me before there was this time before I knew that. Hmm. And there's this time after. And that was like the cataclysm. So, Hmm. but I do think there's some excitement of like, it's mm-hmm. a whole new world with new rules, <laughs> unwritten rules. Oh, I have that song in my head now. It, Thank you. I, I like halfway through tried to not sing it and half <laughs> sang yeah. it. Yeah. As you know, this is an Aladdin podcast and we mostly right. of course. We just work through that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Paladin Around. <laughs> oh, oh, I made Brad roll oh, his no. eyes. I have oh. to do that at least once per episode. Oh. So we're in the clear. Oh. All the boxes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you bring up, obviously the book brings it up as well Mm. in its own way, but the experience of African-American people Mm. in America and the process of that happening, like that's, I think, one of many times in history when in a lot of its aspects, it was an apocalypse to the people in Africa who were brought over and Mm -hmm. the people who were brought into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was looking at just data there, apparently from 1525, to 1866, the transatlantic slave trade brought 12.5 million people to the New World, which uh, on the scale of the population there and, and the people being moved, that's stunning. Mm. It mm. it's, feels borderline unimaginable today. To and that's the ones who didn't die. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I feel like a lot of white folks get that the intense tragedy and or like, I don't mean get, but are aware of. Uh, obviously the intense suffering and death aspect, but something that I think people need to pause and reflect on more is the otherworldliness aspect of being taken from a place where now you're in a new place Mm. with technologies that you don't have at home, no common language, all cultures erased. It's truly apocalyptic. Like To be part of the slave trade and brought to America was the insane part is if, if you lived walking off the boat like what is this world now? Yeah. It's it's mm. you have no tools whatsoever. It's as, like crazy to me to no, try and was, imagine. Yeah. That was that was kind of the point. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. but, I mean it's um, it, it hits every hallmark of a true apocalypse and post-apocalypse. Like mm. there's nothing about it that doesn't fulfill the full apocalypse story. Mm. And I think the same could be said. Um, May he rest in peace wherever he is podcasting elsewhere. But I recently departed, not truly, quit. Editor-in-chief Jack O'Brien is the <laughs> don't, one. Don't frame it too much no. like a okay. death. Sounder right. of the site, beloved friend and, and <laughs> He's fine. godfather sorry. of the I'm site for all time, Jack O'Brien. <laughs> um, brought up in several episodes that like a lot of people know the historical genocide of the Native Americans mm. existed. But people don't understand that right before that, there were huge metropolises with m- hundreds of millions of citizens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like people imagine that Europeans came and wiped out mm-hmm. various itinerant tribes. And it's like there yeah. were cities of 300 million people wiped out. That is a true apocalypse. Yeah. It's amazing. Or not. Not cities of 300 million. But yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm sorry, the whole country. The amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there were giant metropolises with millions of people living in them, yeah. which is a oh, whole that's... different way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then there's the fact that it's still happening. So, of course. Um, oh, but, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's even just as a percentage, when it first happened after Colombian discovery, the estimates range up to like 90% of the population. And yeah. that's like yeah. we make movies like I Am Legend where that happens to a guy and we're like, that can you even imagine a mm. planet? But it did yeah. on two continents. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I borrowed from a lot of different apocalyptic experiences since we're using since we're using that frame um, I borrowed from uh, the experience of queer people being closeted I borrowed from uh, the Holocaust you know so human history is full of apocalypses uh, when you really want to kind of break it down and there was a whole lot of uh, research I read history for fun though um, it wasn't so much research that was just kind of like it's another thing I nerd about. Oh, no. Um, hey, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, so there, there's so many things to draw from in terms of, you know, realistic material to build this fantasy story from. Um, and, you know, I don't see any reason why not to use lots of realism in my fantasy. So Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was very mm. curious. The world of your books is so feels so tangible and it feels mm. so structured mm. in a way that feels solid. Mm. Uh, and mm. I was curious how much, if at all, you drew on the history of Earth in terms of lots. putting it to lots. <laughs> lots, yeah. yeah. Pretty much every major event that happens uh, in the trilogy is is allegorically drawn from something that actually happened in human history. You know, I, I you know, of course, added giant rocks and things like that. But, you know, aside from that. There's been some giant rocks in history, some well, notable yes. rocks. <laughs> Gibraltar. Not talking ones. <laughs> sure, yeah, not talking true. ones, not flying ones um, so much. I saw the never-ending story. There was a pretty <laughs> decent talking rock that okay, I think then. people enjoyed. All right. <laughs> yeah, one of our rock listeners is like, nobody sure. listens to me. I'm talking all the time. And I've, I've heard Game it. of Thrones is a lot of War of the Roses inspired mm-hmm. by. Is mm-hmm. that accurate? Yeah. It is, yeah. And I think a few, uh, like uh, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and, and a few other mm. European So it's so episodes. funny that... Fantasy, which literally, like, the mm. word is defined as the craziest, like, most imaginative <laughs> thing you could think of. It is mm. so grounded. <laughs> we have nothing mm. to talk about but our lives. And, you know, it's really hard and to worth yeah. yeah write something that's truly outside the human experience. I don't even know what that would be. Well, but, yeah. I mean, that's... Fantasy has always been that. Um, right. The, course, the yeah. point of fantasy is to give you another lens through which to look at reality. The more clear that lens is, um, you know, kind of the more interesting or engaging an experience you have with it. You know, it's just it's the same thing. It, these are still human stories at the end of the day. Yes. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In terms of drawing on history, did you draw it all on like famous seismic events or famous volcanic <laughs> eruptions? Or? Just uh, which one was it that caused the year without a summer? Uh, Tambora. Tambora. In, okay. in Indonesia. All right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the year without a summer is is an obvious inspiration. Um, and, and that was, you know, a, a typical seismic winter, or volcanic winter, as, as they're called, where a giant volcano blowing up on one side of the world caused a massive change to the climate all over the world, basically. Those kinds of events have happened throughout history. But um, extinction level events, you know, including things like the Deccan Traps and you know, there's so many different events. Uh, that Sorry, you can, the, the Deccan Traps? Uh, there are a series of volcanoes along the edge of the Indian supercontinent. The Deccan Plateau there. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't remember how many million years ago they all blew up um, oh, because wow. it was a it's a hot spot. And so, you know, and, the, you know, bad things happened and death. Yeah. So, you know, it happened 
relatively soon after the Yucatan Chicxulub, I'm mutilating the pronunciation of that, <laughs> a little while after the Yucatan Peninsula thing, the, the, the uh, meteor impact that caused uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. I think I've got mm-hmm. that right. If I've yeah. got the science or the, the history so. wrong, then uh, please, somebody is, is going to write in and correct me, I hope. Oh, I'm sure. But we'll so, just add it in Aladdin stuff here. If, <laughs> if, uh, yeah. Well, that and the Deccan traps <laughs> occurred relatively close together, and, and it is theorized that that is what killed the dinosaurs. Or at least I think that's the latest theory. The one-two punch. Yes. Or, it, you know, <laughs> there's some debate about whether one or the other happened or both happened. Yeah, you know, sure. we know they happened. We don't know how much they fed into each other. Mm. So. And good news, yeah. there's debate about whether or not Yellowstone is going to do something very similar very soon. <laughs> right. I've seen that article. Yeah. Like, 20 people have sent me that article this week. Uh, the super volcano apocalypse oh. is the only apocalypse scenario that I actually walk around afraid of in my really? head. Really? Like, I don't know why. That's what's... I wonder uh, if what it says about each person, like, which mm. apocalypse they fear. I feel somehow immune from the meteorite thing. The odds <laughs> seem so limited. Mm. But I have some feeling in my bones that the super volcano is going to happen Well, soon. you said you were from the West Coast, though, right? Yes. Where along the West Coast? Uh, San Diego and Alabama. Oh, yeah, okay. All the all way right. tucked okay. down there. All right, all right. Because I was just visiting uh, Seattle uh, a few months ago. And Seattle's beautiful. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. city. But as I was flying out, I noticed this giant volcano there, Mount Rainier. And I remembered, like, researching that Mount Rainier is one of the 10-decade volcanoes all over the world, basically, uh, the volcanoes that will just kill us. Oh. Um, (laughs) If they ever, like, really go up, basically, you know, they're the... the, So this decade a size classification or, like, a power You know, I don't actually know why they're classified that way, but there's only 10 of them, so maybe that's it. Oh, it's like the decade Yeah, maybe that's... The 10 worst volcanoes. Maybe that's what that is. I I honestly don't remember. (laughs) I I researched that a while ago, and I completely (laughs) forgot. If Rainier and everything on that Pacific... Pacific Northwest, the stuff under that hotspot kind mm-hmm. of ever goes, including Yellowstone. You know, there's no, there's no preparing That's it. for that. There yeah. you go. There's no preparing <laughs> for that. You know, mice rule the world. Yeah. And it's interesting, you were talking about um, events like that, and that's that's one of my favorite apocalypses that I've never seen made into film, mm. or I don't think even a book, it, like with fleshed out characters, is the genetic bottleneck that we know happened. Like way, mm. way back when in human mm. history, yeah. there was a time where it got down to like, 10,000 or 1,000 mating individual Mm. pairs of Mm -hmm. humans on the face of the earth because they think an ice age or something like that. So we've literally lived through, even humans, Mm -hmm. like there's been a literal apocalypse where it got down to almost no humans left and they had to repopulate. Well, remember there has been science fiction about that, the Battlestar Galactica series by Ron Moore. Oh. Spoiler alert. That's true. (laughs) That spoils Battlestar. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, I don't know how you want to handle the spoiler part, but... As long as you don't give the details of the boxing episode, I think everyone's <laughs> okay. best subplot ever. <laughs> I want to touch on the details of a couple of these catastrophes because sure. the mm-hmm. year without a summer, not mm-hmm. as much of a catastrophe. It's smaller scale it than really, Toba. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is something, as you said, where it was the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. It erupted in April 1815. It caused a temperature drop across the world, and that led to food shortages across mm-hmm. the world because a year of crops failed. Yep. And 1816, after it was so weird that in June, the ground in New York State froze solid. There was snowfall in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and then there were food riots throughout Europe. Rice crop died in China. There was a cholera outbreak that went from India to Moscow, mm-hmm. and that all happened in one year because of one volcano in one part of the world. Is and that when the Thames froze as well? There's like... 
I believe it. Yeah, I don't okay. remember. Yeah. Hmm. There's a very unique period of paintings from mm. just one year huh. of people having like yard sales and fairs on the frozen Thames River. Oh, wow. And of, okay. obviously oh. it was of note to paint because that never hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, that sounds kind of great. Yeah. I would be into that. <laughs> it does, yeah. Not if you're also all starving to death. Well, no. And you're on the frozen river to like sell your kidneys for <laughs> right, right. I guess they eat kidney pie. You just make oh, the pie, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> This is why they have me on. Yeah. I'm here to do this. You haven't okay. been on the show before. You don't know. Oh, no. I'm here to derail the show. Oh, no. <laughs> and then also with the Toba catastrophe, right? That's a thing where the theory is sort of hard to exactly work out. And, and a little of people disagree about the exact details. But about 70,000 BCE, a super volcano went up also in Indonesia, which seems to have a lot of these. That's where mm. Krakatoa was. And, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm pointing that out. You're fine. Indonesian. <laughs> But it brought the population of humans down to about mm. a thousand adults, is yeah. what they that's think. That's the one. That's the theory. That's yeah. awesome. And that's the one you were talking not about. Not yeah. awesome. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the truest sense, it's mm-hmm. awesome. But, right. uh, mm-hmm. but I want to see a movie about that. Like, that's a true uh, apocalyptic experience, I think, would be cool to see. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like an apocalypto kind of thing where it's purely from their perspective and they're just running and surviving. Yeah, but it. especially if it taught you a little about actually what's going, like, why, what a genetic bottleneck is and how Mm. this happened yeah open with the super volcano Mm. that'd be neat oregon state did a study around that and they said that after the first toba explosion there were 15 to twenty thousand more years of follow-up eruptions Mm. wow right kind of like earthquake aftershocks because apparently that's how seismology works and of course and also Only 15 to 20,000? That's not so bad. <laughs> it's it's yeah, like yeah, remarkable it that yeah. we exist. Yeah. It's remarkable that the yeah. bottleneck was not down to zero. Yeah. Good well, job. Well, I mean, and, and there are 10,000 <laughs> other things that could have wiped us out. Absolutely, so, yeah. You know, that one is, is one of the more interesting ones, definitely. But when you start researching... Um, extinction level events and and famines and things that and plagues and things that could have just kind of wiped us all out. It's sort of fascinating that we actually are still alive. Um, you know that we're we're still you know mostly thriving. I mean at this point we're, we dominate the planet. You know and so when when people start talking about things like climate change and whether that'll wipe us out, I'm like eh, nah, it'll kill a lot of us. It'll be horrible. But you know. There'll be quite a few people still left. I think for most people that counts, though. That is an apocalypse. If the world changes so radically that I live and there's only 50,000 other people, I would still be like, that was the end of the world, though, as far as we're concerned. We're not going to live to see the rebuilding in any meaningful sense. Yeah, Yeah, An apocalypse is a relative thing. Yeah, absolutely. Truly, though, yeah. Mm. Related to climate change, too, it seems like it's an interesting balance where climate change is probably worsening a lot of these things. Yeah. And also the planet has always hated us. Mm. You know what I mean? Like mm. it, they, uh, mm. there's some I was reading about people saying, hey, how much is climate change impacting these hurricanes that are going The hurricane specifically. On? And it's hard to you can't nail that down to a percentage. <laughs> yeah. And there, there's elements they're sure of like they know warmer water and more moisture in the air contributes to it. But they're mm-hmm. saying also for centuries we've had terrible hurricanes. Like yeah. It just depends how often yeah. they're happening yeah. and how much. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, is not whether, you know, it, it's 
There, there's lots of people that want to kind of debate whether it's happening or whether we're causing it. I'm sorry. We can see that it's happening. Um, lots of people want to debate that. But at the end of the day, are you going to build, build barrier islands? Are you going to yeah. uh, do things to raise islands that are below sea level yeah. or cities that are below sea level? The Maldives um, need a solution yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't well, wait on the Maldives. The Caribbean needs a solution <laughs> yeah, fast. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of island nations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah truly. So, in the world of your Broken Earth books, there's things that they call fifth seasons, mm. which is referring to we have the normal four seasons, but then also a fifth season is when mm. something apocalyptic happens. Right, and then right, people right. in the society will officially declare it a season or not. Right. Um, there's a pe- there's an appendix in the books, which is great <laughs> because it's just a rundown of and then With the all world the different ended this ways way. that people died horribly. And then yes. that, yeah. Mm. And there are a few of them that involve the ocean. And I was mm. curious what mm-hmm. the touchstone is for that, because like there's one called the season of yellow seas where a bacterial bloom kills all sea life and the coastal right. communities starve yeah, and and i yeah. feel like that's sort of an underreported kind of apocalypse that is mm. happening in general well that's another seismic apocalypse though um because we we've seen in our own world uh, red lakes and things like that which often happen as either precursor or or postcursor of uh, an eruption the water gets acidified, algae oh. blooms, kills everything, sucks up all the air, um, everything in it dies. Um, we've seen that happen in our own world several times. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a process of magma or lava going into a lake, something no, like that? No, no. It's oh, okay. literally just, um, what was that movie with Pierce Brosnan? Oh, Dante's um, Peak. Yeah, Dante's Peak. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there was something like that that happened in Dante's Peak. I mean, you know, granted, yeah. so much of Dante's Peak was, you know, crap but was um, too accurate you know, yes yeah. but, that you know. dog should have gotten burned by lava that was bullshit. <laughs> you're really upset about this yeah. all right um you know but in that film it was it was over dramatized it was you know like battery acid in that film no it doesn't usually happen to that degree but acidification can cause uh, algal blooms and fish to die fish kills we see fish kills all the time in our own world um oh, and wow. if yeah yeah they happen lots um and if uh, there is, say, an eruption under the sea or even just a release of enough gases or material that acidif- acidifies an area that could happen in our own world. may very well have already happened. I don't know. And a lot of oceanographers <laughs> and like uh, marine scientists are saying that, look, if you poison the ocean, yeah. here's what will still do well. Yeah. And they paint a picture of the ocean could just be a, like a jellified mass of nothing but algae and jellyfish. Yeah. Like, good luck, beach party goers. Yeah. I don't want that. Yeah. That sounds so yeah. horrifying. Yeah. It's like when you find out there was a period on Earth where it was only shrubs and fist-sized insects <laughs> over oh. the entire globe. Yeah, You're like, much. Well, I know where I'm not going in the time machine. <laughs> <laughs> right. But man, jelly. we're also having, yeah, jellyfish yeah. are yeah. the thing that you most yeah. don't want to touch your leg when you're right. swimming in the ocean. And I've seen people complain. And you can't even eat them. Millions and millions yeah. and millions of, yeah, are yeah. being born right now. They love it. Yeah, that that the jelly, jellyfish apocalypse. Jellyfish blooms are happening everywhere. Okay. Well, they are. We talked about this on a past episode. Jellyfish are my number one animal phobia, mm. and so I do not like that we I are. Don't blame you, but spreading yeah. them around. Well, that's mm. unlucky Thank for you. you because the only yeah. creature ever known to be physically immortal is a jellyfish. Mm. Yeah, so you're not going to get away. There's that mm. jellyfish that ages to the age of death, and then ages back into pupilhood, and then ages forward again. Don't sunfish eat them? The the giant sunfish? I think so, yeah. I think they eat jellyfish, but yeah. they're basically like jellyfish fish themselves. 
Um, all they do is sort of float around and, and take up space. Gross. The point <laughs> is, the ocean's just going to become slime. Like, it will just be mostly slime. I'm Basically. really unhappy. Uh, and then we do a market on top of it. It'll be great. Oh, just, no. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We just have the farmer's market on top of that giant plastic trash pile in the middle of the ocean. Oh, yeah. I've heard about Repurpose the, uh, that. Trash islands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They just discovered a new one. Oh. That they just. What? A second new trash pile. No, come on. Um, uh. That they keep describing in multiple articles as the size of the country of Mexico. And I'm like, Mexico probably doesn't appreciate that being the exclusive yeah. size comparison, but oh. <laughs> how big is that pile mm. of trash? Oh my God. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We're doomed. What if it was like somehow Mexico shaped? So, yeah, that's fair. Because, of course, the shape. first image that popped into why. my head is a Mexico shaped trash. Don't know why it would be. Support for today's show comes from Felipe Esparza. Translate this. It is the first HBO comedy special by one of the best comedians working today. Felipe Esparza is the winner of Last Comic Standing in 2010. You've seen him everywhere from The Tonight Show to The Eric Andre Show to shows in L.A. I've gotten to do a stand-up show with him, which was very lucky for me because he's incredible and was very friendly to boot. The special has stories about Felipe translating for his parents when he was a kid, about his father getting the family to the U.S. from Mexico, and about Felipe becoming a father himself while still in high school. He also riffs on the challenges of identifying illegal immigrants, on being a single father and dating single moms, cheating versus being cheated on, watching adult films with his wife. There is a range of life experiences in there done in the funniest way possible. You gotta check it out. Watch Felipe Esparza translate this on HBO and HBO Latino Saturday, September 30th at 10 p.m., just in time for Hispanic Heritage Month. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Has anyone told you how cool you are lately? Hey, you rule. You know, you're really great. You should show that off with a website of your very own online. Squarespace has beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They have 24-7 customer support. They have analytics to let you know how your website is doing. All the tools you need to showcase your ideas, your business, and yourself on the internet. You can customize everything about it. Everything about it is also optimized for mobile right away. Hey, you probably use a smartphone. Your website will look great on every smartphone with Squarespace. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And if you do have a question about it, again, 24-7 customer support. They are always there. They do not close. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial of their amazing service. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Because we got you. That's squarespace.com, offer code CRACKED. I have a theory about apocalyptic stuff in general, which is that climate or scarcity-based apocalypses are really the only ones that make sense. Mm. Uh, we had an article a few months back on our site by our colleague and friend David Wong, uh, and he was talking about The Walking Dead as a TV show, mm -hmm. and he was arguing that most of how people treat each other in The Walking Dead doesn't make sense. Because it's insane. It would yeah, be, it really is. his mm -hmm. argument was this kind of thing where there will be a scene where there's some stray person walking along the road and mm -hmm. our party of heroes just kind of passes them and doesn't even look into it. Mm -hmm. But in real life, you'd be like, maybe they're a doctor. Maybe yeah. they're, and yeah. they know how to grow food. Maybe yeah. they can help us out. Yeah. And his overall argument was that we're more constructive than destructive in a terrible situation. 
I don't know about more constructive than destructive, but yeah. But when you do research survivors of apocalypses, um, you don't see communities of, of Mad Max preppers or anything. You see uh-huh. uh, communities of people who cooperate and yeah. and you know who are generally nice. Um, you know, <laughs> right. so you know I've even seen some some you know maybe crackpot theories that altruism evolved as some kind of means of surviving apocalypses or periods of, of strife. But oh, um, cool. but that said, you know, you see communities of people who cooperate, work together, grow food, share that food. Um, you don't see the kinds of apocalypses that we, we typically see in American science fiction, which are usually all about like, you know, rugged individuals running around cacking right. people mm. with a hatchet or something yeah resource war marauders who have yeah. repurposed cars to, yeah, yeah yeah they always make the car so ugly too why not just make it like functional why put all this extra yeah. crap on it i never understood that and lots of nipple jewelry <laughs> that seems like it would get sand in it or you know an infection yeah. when you've got no antibiotics <laughs> yeah you know i just the weirdest thing about the whole concept of zombies mm. and i think it comes from people worrying about the world before the characters because you're right like it's mm. people want people know zombies exist as like a pre-made sci-fi world mm. and they jump in and they don't do the work of building their own world that has consistent rules oh. So you get these things where people act crazy. For example, I think one of David's best points is if you only treat zombies like zombies because zombie movies exist. If your (laughs) relatives suddenly started foaming at the mouth, Mm -hmm. trying to bite you, writhing around, Mm -hmm. you would not say immediately shoot them in the head. (laughs) You would think they have something. Which relative are you talking about? Well, it depends. That's that's the wrong conversation to have here. You know what I mean. (laughs) Way longer than they do in a zombie movie. Mm -hmm. You would be convinced that there's some sort of horrible disease spreading or like brain condition. I would think it was rabies. You wouldn't immediately go, they're gone. They're, that person's not in there anymore. I am free to coolly decapitate this person. Yeah, yeah. Like you'd be like, what if they're in there? What if they're just sick? Yeah. For a long time, for years, yeah. if not months, you know. I yeah. would think rabies, and I would call absolutely you know, doctors and so forth. Yeah. And yet, our heroes are the people who most quickly go, "Well, let's get some crossbows and shoot these people in the head." <laughs> I just think that's funny. Well, I mean, you, you kind of touched on this earlier when you when you were pointing out that. A lot of apocalypses are about um, people wanting to redo the world, rebuild the world. And so post-apocalyptic fiction gives you a handy-dandy way to reduce other people into um, ciphers that can be easily killed, get rid of governments and, and the need for law and you know manners. Different aesthetics suddenly abound. You can yeah. wear all of your piercings all at once. <laughs> it's a chance for people to kind of let that flag fly. But that's not how actual apocalypses work in the actual world. That's um, true. I never looked yeah. at it that way, and now yeah. I'm sad. Like, <laughs> I hope the appeal of apocalyptic fiction is not overridingly I wish I was allowed to shoot people and it meant nothing to me. (laughs) Um, But I bet there are some people reading it for that reason. Uh, Now I'm sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, probably. I, I can't remember where, but online the other day I came across a particularly bleak theory about zombie movies and zombie stories, which is that they're a new version of Westerns. And then people are excited about that because then rather than cowboys fighting Indians, mm. it's people fighting zombies. It, it's it's a fully Literally dehumanization. Yeah. yeah, it's well, a I fully mean, murderable opponent. There, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of attempts to create an easily set of dehumanized 
killable, yeah. uh, morally killable yeah. people. I mean, you know, I was complaining uh, at one point about uh, orcs in fantasy uh, and how sure. in, you know, D&D and all these other things, you, you see orcs and orcs are basically, you know, near human, um, but lacking in all of the things that supposedly make people human, but they're sentient. They are actual people. Very much so, um, yeah. The usual response of a party playing D&D is to not bother to negotiate or not try and create, you know, a, a society where you're having mutual cohabitation or trade or whatever with these orcs. You just want to, like, go all in and, and start killing. And, yeah. you know, when you really kind of break that down, there's there's uh, some subtext there. Yeah. I'll just It's like it's that. amazing that you yeah. usually... There's a lot of subtext there. I would yeah. say most parties... If they spot an orc on a rise, mm. will sneak up behind them and <laughs> kill them like with minimal fuss. Yeah. Which is like you replace orc with any other thing. Yeah. And that's not cool at all to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I'm just realizing a lot of I think a lot of fantasy worlds will have a the concept of a half orc, which is a human and orc. So like yeah. you get, so like how different are they even species wise? Yeah. So, you know, you're allowed have... to play as a full orc if your intelligence is three or lower. Which is a slander of it in its own way, obviously. Oh, man. But yeah. <laughs> um, what's uh, most amazing is, at least in the, I think, 3.5 in the Dungeon Master's Guide I have, the description of orcs says something like, orcs cannot read. This is an unbreakable rule. I'm mm. like, that's how you oppress people. Yeah. <laughs> they cannot oh, read yeah. physically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, fantasy's pretty racist. Yes. Um, exactly. At the end of the yeah. day, when you, when you break it all down and when you really start kind of digging under some of yeah. the, what did you the, do, the typical tropes. What well, did you do? <laughs> that's, that's a whole set of debates right exactly. there. So, yeah. Altruism in particular is fascinating to me because mm. there are some theories about pets in particular dogs mm. and how there's a theory out there that they might have self-domesticated like huh. it wasn't so much uh-huh. a process of us going out and i don't know rounding up wolves and then mm-hmm. breeding them a specific way and doing entirely mm-hmm. active work on our part mm-hmm. it the theory goes that they might that wolves might have seen what we're doing mm-hmm. and up to as primitive people mm-hmm. and said oh i can work with that community mm-hmm. that will be a way to get food in an organized fashion huh. rather than what i'm up to I'm probably not explaining it very well. That sounds silly as I say it. The same thing I read when it was going around then is the extension of the thought that now humans are domesticating themselves as a species in a way. Yes, yeah. And the overall idea of It was compelling when I read it and I can't remember any of the evidence. Because for for both humans and dogs, the idea Mm -hmm. is that being a cooperative and kind person is Mm -hmm. the most aggressive survival strategy. It's Mm -hmm. the most powerful, successful way to pass on your genes is to join a community, mate with members of it, and not be that nut in the crazy uh, Mm. desert Mad Max car who is probably single. You know what I mean? Like they're not. (laughs) That was was the basis of one of the things that I, I built into the world of the stillness was um, you know, they've built their society around survival. And one of the things, they've got this set of rules that are literally etched in stone called stone lore that yeah. they use to dictate things. But one of the rules is basically, you know, get rid of the people that are troublemakers and constantly causing fights and so forth in your community. The people who can't get along with everybody, the people who want to be out in front all the time, those yeah. people are actually going to cause you a lot of problems when the apocalypse comes. If so get rid of them quick. If they're, stocking, <laughs> if they're stocking up on tiki torches, red flag, <laughs> yeah, Well, now, yeah. yeah, that's, that's... <laughs> oh, man. Get rid of them quick. Oh, really fast. Oh, man. Really fast. They get signal, them out. I guess. Yeah. Get them out. Yeah. Get them out. <laughs> I've made Brett roll his eyes and Alex uncomfortable. So this is a win <laughs> for me. This is a great episode for okay. me. Okay. <laughs> 
one of my favorite bits of that stone lore is I think it's necessity is the only law, mm, which yeah. it's a society that is in many ways very, uh, justice is very swift. Mm, like when the mm-hmm. origins are being trained, if they're failing, they're killed. Well, that's not justice, but yeah. Or, right, yeah. it's mm-hmm. unjust. Right, right, right. That necessity is the only law rule, if I, if I remember it exactly specifically right, it's that as people are surviving a season, mm. if people are willing to work with you, you work with them. Yep. Yep, that's that's yeah. the only requirement. That's the only. Rubric. Well, they also use it to justify cannibalism, but uh, yeah. Oh, so so yeah. while we're there, though, that's that's another um, aspect. Yeah. But yes, altruism too. <laughs> yeah. Necessity so, is a nuanced issue. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's yes. a better way. Yeah. You know, if you've got the the obnoxious person in your community who's disrupting things, and you have to kill them, you might as well put them to good use after that. So. Yeah, I am yeah. like a sociopath, but I don't. I agree completely. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it gets questioned at, you know, different points in the story. It, it, it gets pointed out that, you know, there's a there's a limit to this survivalist thinking that you kind of have to do. Past a certain point in time, you have to think of people not in terms of their usefulness or their, their monetary value or their value to the community. You have to think about things like elderly people can tell stories. You know, you yeah. you can't just kick people out because they've become disabled or you or because, you know, the 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 lore is telling them to treat people that way. But you start to really think about it and you start to realize, no, that's not how a human society should function, even in term, times of, of duress. So anyway. That's another running thing in, in it is how society gets rebuilt after disaster because throughout the setting of the book they see elements of what they call dead civs Mm -hmm. which are previous civilizations that had constructed something before the apocalypse and then the people are gone now and it's particularly neat that some of the characters look down on dead civ stuff like they're not blown away by it they're like those are losers (laughs) the world ended The entire series is meant to kind of like poke holes in that and point out, you know, there's there's literally giant rocks floating over your head. Uh, these people had, you know, technological abilities so far beyond you. For you to just dismiss that makes no sense whatsoever. But, you know, you go yeah. on with your little Ayn Rand influenced <laughs> We're alive. Philosophy. We must have won. Yeah. yeah. All right. do, do what you got to do. In the meantime, you know, the world is, is possibly could be fixed, you know. Sure. So. Yeah. Any chance that I was inspired at all by the excavation of Troy? No, or, no, no. But when they uh, excavated like the historical site where Troy mm-hmm. actually was, they found something like three versions of it built on top of itself huh. because it had been sacked. They uh-huh. built the same city because they're like, we'll build it bigger <laughs> and stronger. It got okay. sacked again. And they're like, uh-huh. and then no, build like... the same city. And they destroyed it again. And they're like, we're all dead. So never oh. mind. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. I had not heard that. Actually. I just imagine how cool it is to be an archaeologist. You're looking for the hmm. fabled city of Troy and you find three. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all That's pancaked on top day. of each other. On yeah. top of itself. Like, really? Yeah. yeah. It's, very, it's lazy. You don't even have to move your dig site. It's just keep <laughs> digging down. It's great. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel like mm. they would keep finding like Neanderthal. Troy, dinosaur Troy. It's not scientific. But. Six layers. It's all hold yeah. my beer, Troy. It's like I'm gonna do this again. I don't care what happened last time. All right. Six layers uh, down. There's a Hello Kitty Troy. We have oh, no, no idea how this works anymore. <laughs> In terms of that rebuilding, I feel like a lot of apocalyptic fiction will follow people 
saving the previous world or succeeding in some way. Mm-hmm. And then when it's time to rebuild, credits. Like we ah, just assume that right. that's the happily ever after. And yeah, we always yeah. assume they reinstate the exact familiar mm. world as it is. Right. Yeah. And that's good, right. which is like, why is that always good? Mm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Especially because usually it was some kind of feudal monarchy or something. Like it wasn't even necessarily <laughs> a great place well, to fantasy be. Fantasy is pretty classist too. Yeah. So <laughs> not a whole bunch of other ists, but yeah. 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 But I wonder, I wonder why there's not more fiction about the rebuilding like, is it mm. just boring to watch urban planning or is it why are I mean, we skipping depends. over that cool you know thing? It, i think i think there's something in our society that kind of thinks that the you know running around with hatchets is fun but you know running around and using those hatchets to build log cabins is not yeah. um, but it's all a question of like how you choose to to focus on it and who you who chooses to write about it i think you know, yeah. I mean, there is some really good world building fiction out there, society building fiction out there, but it's it's not generally considered part of the apocalyptic genre, which is really sort of fascinating. Right. Um, even though that's the arc of a society. It's like the inevitable outcome of yeah. one follows the other, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Unless it's Mad Max Unless world. it's absolute apocalypse, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Nora, as you described that kind of fiction, the first thing I thought of was Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is, it's a series of books just following, but they're building from nothing. Like they're they're importing Mm -hmm. American and Russian and other Mm -hmm. Earth Society cultures, but it's it's Mm -hmm. a dead planet, essentially. Well, I was thinking about Dune, actually, Mm -hmm. which, you know, over the the, the arc of the, the series is, uh, trying to turn a desert world into a paradise, you know? Right. So, yeah. I mean, they succeed and then they mess it up again, but you know. Which again, I just, I love it. He mm-hmm. worked for the water department. He's like, that's, that's I got to think I of no something. Idea. I had no idea. I have to think of something really sci-fi. Huh. <gasps> what if I could turn a whole planet of sand into plants? <laughs> like, <laughs> of course, that's what you think, water department guy. That's oh, great. Nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I'll irrigate everything. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of funny. Water is power. Right, yeah. Water is all around me. I love me. whatever's in front of you is power. Like, uh, I write a sci-fi dystopia about jokes become the currency of the future. <laughs> Four fart jokes equals a politics joke. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Don't you get it? Jokes are everything. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I became a comedian because I nerd out about jokes and joke structure. Oh, wow. I think whatever yeah. we nerd out about, yeah. we, we run the risk of thinking it is the world. Mm. <laughs> yeah. In writing scripts, a lot of the first scripts I ever wrote were set in historical times and very, very driven by that because that was just the thing I like to read for fun. Sure. And, mm. and, and mm-hmm. Yeah, it sticks with you. You can't get away from it. Because Vonnegut, who we do a show about, his first book was basically about him not liking his job as a public relations employee at General Electric. Really? Yeah. His first book, Player Piano, is about... Like a guy who works at a General Electric and uh, Schenectady uh-huh. kind of facility and uh-huh. feels like there's too much automation and it's off the rails. Oh, wow. And he I was had no idea. writing it as he was trying to stop working a day job at GE. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my God. And then he found ways to go to other planets and, and mm, went yeah. from there. Speaking of day jobs, uh, Nora, in the acknowledgments to Stone Sky, you mentioned that you in the process of writing these books moved away from your day job and then you also I think fascinatingly Mm -hmm. make a point of I liked my day job I got to help people very directly yeah Um, yeah I miss it still you know I mean I don't want to go back to it but um scratch that I uh was was for many years carrying on two complete full-time careers 
which all writers wow. have to do these days because, you know, you just can't make very much money from writing anymore. Right. Um, you know, back in, in uh, the early days of Vonnegut, you, you could. You could, uh, you know, pay your rent with a short story check and, you know, that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, rent is like now. 10 or 12 short stories mm-hmm. or something to really good markets, if you're lucky. And, uh, you have to type so, fast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> type fast, be you know, more superhumanly creative. I was just kind of committed to keeping my day job like for life because I thought I was going to have to. And one of the things that artists kind of really need to try and make sure that they do is not treat their day job as, you know, the, the miserable thing that you do for money. Part of my day job was that I was a career counselor, so I knew about work-life balance. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was important to, to do something that makes me feel good for the eight hours a day that I am there so that then when I get home and try and write for eight more hours, I am, I am not exhausting myself or um, I'm not exhausted when I start and I've got some fuel to work with. But it got to the point where between the two full-time careers and uh, dealing with, you know, my mother's illness uh, in her last year and nine or ten other major things that were starting to happen, plus my writer career was kind of exploding, I, I had no choice. I had to give it up. So, Of course, yeah. Well, and, yeah. and also I meant to say congratulations on, I read just recently they're developing Broken Earth into a possible a TV, TV series at yeah, TNT, which yeah. is amazing. We're going to see what happens. I'm, I'm super excited, but uh, I hope I'm to also see a it. little, I'm yeah. also freaked out by this. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Sure. Um, you know, it's in my head in a particular way. It's not going to come out on TV, on, you know, on celluloid in oh. the same way. And so what? But and also, and oh, I think, oh, of course, well, mm-hmm. and I get the sense you're conscious of it, but it seems like human resilience is such a driving Mm. element of all of these books. And Mm. I I Mm -hmm. feel like you must have drawn on that work to put it together. I mean, yeah, I draw on that work in, you know, I mean, if you want to kind of talk about the parallel with my day job life, um, I was a career counselor slash uh, other kinds of counselor, basically, and, you know, trained in counseling psychology. And during the day, I helped primarily, you know, sort of adolescents, young adults, survive college. And college is is one of the most, in some ways, brutal transitory periods of a young adult's life in, in societies where college is a big thing. Yeah. And so, you know, you're developing your identity. Your, your brain is literally still developing because there's certain methods of thinking that are actually hard for you as a freshman that you're capable of as, as a senior which you've got to kind of try and work through all that. In a lot of cases, you are separating yourself from your family for the first time in order to become the person who you're going to be as an adult. And then also you're trying to like figure out how you're going to make a living. And a lot of people crash and burn. A lot of people struggle as they're trying to go through college. And a lot of people, you know, people don't talk about this, but um, the suicide rate is is a thing in college. A lot of people oh, don't survive sure. college. And so that is why you need counselors. Right. Um, you know, college is actually a, a kind of a brutal crucible in some ways. When you're talking about resilience and you understand just how much it takes to do something as simple as transition from from childhood into adulthood in our society, and you understand, you know, the the potential pitfalls and the ways in which people develop coping mechanisms, sometimes PTSD, and so on, it's hard not to be interested in how people deal with crisis and trauma. 
um, which I guess is one of the things I'm, I'm writing about as well in, in this series. Um, but it's also yeah. one of the things I write about in, in all of my stuff. So that's why I like character-based science fiction. Totally. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, especially the protagonists reconstruct themselves yeah. so much in it. Well, I mean, she's she's got massive PTSD. And the other protagonists also have PTSD for various reasons. You throw a lot of trauma at them. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's just being a writer. <laughs> right. We just put our characters through hell. I blame you. Yeah. yeah we, just, we just do that to her. I just feel yeah. like there's so many, you know, you like to wonder if an author's characters could come to life. And I think yours would be pretty pissed at your choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they popped into my dreams right. pissed exactly. off. So, yeah, it's yeah. like, hey, you were going to throw a mountain at me. Yeah. I had yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) folks that is the episode for this week my thanks to michael swaim to our special guest nk jemison and to the city of new york for being a character the whole time not really we just taped there anyway let's get into some footnotes this week we link off to all things N.K. Jemison, her books, her column, her upcoming TV show news, and congratulations to you on being ahead of the curve on all that by listening to this podcast. You did it. We're also linking off to a slew of real-world apocalypses. There's also some very specific numbers about Native American populations. We sort of kept that vague in the episode. There's also a couple of my favorite apocalypses, as far as just being interesting. I'm not a fan of death. Anyway, we have some fascinating stuff about the Black Death in Europe that is estimated to have killed about a third of the population. Also, if you want more just interesting writing, there's a book called The Years of Rice and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson that theorizes what Europe would have been if that disease killed 99% of the population instead of just a third. And as far as fiction writing goes, pretty good construct because who knows why couldn't the germ have killed a lot more people also this episode we talked about a lot of small-scale apocalypses that happen to countries or even communities and we have one link in there which is a slate article about real maps and reports that were made by the u.s military after world war ii In the U.S.'s effort to defeat Japan, nuclear weapons were used, but a lot of the pilots who flew missions that did regular bombing or firebombing in Japan felt that post-war, their uh, contributions were not being celebrated enough as far as reducing Japan's strength and military readiness. So they made a series of maps and tables showing exactly how many casualties they were able to inflict, and then also did parallels of that to say, hey, if we did this to the number one, two, three, four, etc. cities in Japan, here's the scale of destruction that would have been if we did that to the number one, two, three, four, etc. cities in America, which is crazy morbid and crazy statistical. And if you want to get the scale of how post-war life can be an apocalypse, look at that actual report from the 40s about U.S. bombing of Japan in World War II. Anyway, we've got apocalypses on the brain. We've also got a lot else going on. If you want a Cracked Podcast t-shirt, go over to podswag.com. We have a shirt for Schmitty the Clam. And we also have a shirt for Footnotes. So, a lot going on that you can wear and be very comfy in. And we've just got a lot of podcasting going on. Cracked Movie Club, Cracked Gets Personal, both going on right now. Cracked Gets Personal is ramping up toward the end of its first season. Be sure to check that show out before it's on hiatus. 
And as far as this show goes, the Cracked Podcast theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Hear them on Daptone Records. Our episode was engineered by Andy Christens. It was co-produced by Brett Rader. Find Brett at Brett, R-A-D-E-R on Twitter. And if you love this episode, that is great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, the service that tends to go away in zombie movies, even though I think the survivors would keep up Facebook. Find me under the name at Alex Schmitty on Twitter. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. There's GIFs, newsletters, and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with even more Cracked Podcast. How about that? Talk to you then. Best known for having a raw and real sensibility that's relatable to audiences everywhere, comedian Felipe Esparza stars in his first HBO comedy special, Felipe Esparza Translate This. It's an amazing hour of stand-up with unconventional riffs on the immigrant experience and life's everyday battles. Esparza shares stories about translating for his parents as a kid, how his father got the family to the U.S. from Mexico, and becoming a father himself while still in high school. It's all performed in English with Spanish peppered throughout. Watch Felipe Esparza translate this on HBO and HBO Latino, Saturday, September 30th at 10 p.m. What is up? This is Andrew T., host of the Yoza's Racist Podcast. If you need help dealing with your racist family, your racist coworkers, uh, this is the podcast for you. Yes, even white people. This week, check out my episode with Brett Gelman and Janixa Bravo. They made a great movie called Lemon. Yeah. I hate yeah. being in like white spaces where the hip hop is playing super loud. And I'm like, I'm the only person of color here, and I know there's some, yeah. I know there's some browns in the kitchen. Yeah. So it's like if your front of the house is all white, you don't get hip hop. Listen to Yosis Racist on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.